This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Pakistan's Minister for Climate Change called unprecedented extra cycles of monsoon rain currently flooding the country a climate-induced humanitarian disaster of epic proportions. The death toll along its waterways surpassed 1,000, including hundreds of children. In appealing for international help, the Prime Minister, Shabazz Sharif, said that 33 million of Pakistan's 230 million people had been affected. The Foreign Minister added a plea to the IMF, with so many farmers' crops ruined, just as the country sits at the brink of financial catastrophe, the fund's sustained assistance is desperately needed. The UN's nuclear agency, the IAEA, sent inspectors to the Zaporizhia nuclear power station in the southeast of Ukraine, even as Russian forces bombarded towns around the plant. Russian troops captured the facility in March, but the reactors are still run by Ukrainian staff and, according to Russia, being shelled by Ukrainian forces. Residents in Zaporizhia are being taught how to treat themselves with iodine in the event of radiation exposure. Meanwhile, Magdalena Andersson, Sweden's Prime Minister, said that her country would give Ukraine an additional civilian and military aid package worth 1 billion Swedish kroner, equivalent to $93.4 million. Dmitro Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, said that his country needs weapons from Sweden, as well as cash, to fight off the Russian invasion. Asian stock markets slid as traders made sense of the smoke signals sent up from a meeting of the world's central bankers, who gathered in Wyoming over the weekend. The Federal Reserve's chairman, Jerome Powell, implied the fight against inflation would entail further pain. Japan's Nikkei index shed 2.7% on Monday. The yields on two-year treasuries hit their highest level since the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. Singapore loosened its visa rules in the hope of wooing foreign workers into its tight labour market. From January, expats earning at least 30,000 Singapore dollars a month, equivalent to $21,500 in the US, will be eligible for a five-year work pass. The financial centre's manpower minister, Tan Si Leng, said the move aimed to cement Singapore's position as a global hub for talent. Colombia and Venezuela restored diplomatic relations after a three-year hiatus. Colombia's new left-wing president, Gustavo Petro, had campaigned for closer ties with Nicolas Maduro, the tyrant next door. Detente may enable the reopening of the 2,200-kilometre border between the two countries. It has been largely closed since 2015. Some 1.7 million Venezuelans have fled to Colombia, to escape Mr. Maduro's ruinous regime. Dell, an American computer maker, confirmed it had pulled out of Russia after closing its offices there in mid-August. It joins a long line of Western firms to abandon the country because of its war against Ukraine. The Texas-based company was one of the most important suppliers of servers in Russia. And fact of the day. 145,000, the number of words in India's constitution, the longest in the world. 
And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. No more dollars at the Moscow Exchange. An international pariah, Russia is trying to reorient its economy away from the West. The latest scheme, which comes into effect on Monday, is that the Moscow Exchange, Russia's largest financial marketplace, will no longer accept American dollars as collateral for underwriting transactions. This is part of a long strategy of reducing dependence on the American financial system. In the years before the war in Ukraine, the central bank shifted its foreign exchange holdings away from dollars. The country also built up a parallel payments infrastructure that did not rely on Visa and MasterCard. The question is whether isolation from the West is a good economic strategy. The Russian economy has held up far better under Western sanctions than almost anyone expected. It has sold more oil to India and China and bought more stuff from Turkey. But over time, depriving itself of Western tech and ideas, not to mention money, will start to bite. Syria's Forgotten War For years, the world has treated Syria as a frozen conflict. Iran, Russia, Turkey, and a smattering of American forces have carved the country into zones of influence, while leaving Syrians and the regime of President Bashar al-Assad to labor under crippling sanctions. On Monday, the UN Security Council meets to discuss Syria's crisis. External events largely determine the country's fate. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president, seemingly wants to bury the hatchet with Mr. Assad and forcibly repatriate Syrian refugees before he faces an election next year. Russia has relocated some of its fighting strength, which has been propping up Mr. Assad to its war in Ukraine. And America and Iran are again talking about a nuclear deal, despite American and Iran-backed forces exchanging fire in Syria. The UN looks ever more a bystander. But the Security Council can still serve as a forum for regional and global powers to press their interests while claiming to be helping war-ravaged Syrians. A Folly into Space On Monday, or soon after, NASA hopes to move closer to returning people to the moon's surface with the flight of its space launch system. The SLS will send a capsule carrying three mannequins wired with radiation sensors to the moon's vicinity. Humans are due there in 2024, and a landing is planned for 2025. Unfortunately, the launch is a colossal waste of money. The SLS, which cost American taxpayers around $23 billion in the past decade, will probably soon be outclassed by privately built models. It is a hangover from NASA's Constellation program, which was canceled in 2010 because of ballooning costs. But the contracts for the program had already been doled out to various aerospace companies. So in what Lori Garver, a former NASA official, calls the relentless momentum of the status quo, the SLS program was created by Congress to ensure that contracts from the defunct Constellation program kept going. Taxpayers and space science are poorer for that self-serving decision. What to read to understand how countries escape poverty. Three decades ago, nearly two billion people lived in absolute poverty. By 2018, 
that figure had fallen by more than half. There has perhaps been no greater human achievement. How did this happen? A big part of the answer is found in China, where hundreds of millions have escaped the worst forms of deprivation. But there is no surefire path to development. What worked for Singapore may not work for Somalia. Yet, as these four books suggest, some things matter more than others. Poor Economics by Abhijit Banjuri and Esther Duflo, both Nobel Prize winners in economics, does what much literature on development does not: treats the poor as people rather than as a faceless collective. Also, try Development as Freedom by Amartya Sen, in which another Nobel economics laureate lays out his theories about what freedom really means. Freedom from poverty is one measure. But so is access to basic services such as education and healthcare. How China escaped the poverty trap by Yuan Yuan Ong explains how China exploited institutional weaknesses such as corruption and unstable property rights to build markets. These flourishing markets helped strengthen institutions, which in turn developed markets further and helped to lift millions of people out of poverty. Last. To understand what doesn't work as well as what does, try *The White Man's Burden* by William Easterly. The Economist argues that the West's approach, comprising foreign aid and advice, is a costly example of failure. According to Mr. Easterly, it accomplished so much ill because it imposed top-down plans on countries instead of understanding bureaucratic, cultural, and political conditions on the ground. Serena's swan song at the U.S. Open. As a child, Serena Williams said her goal in tennis was to win the U.S. Open. That happened quickly enough. In 1999, she won the tournament as a 17-year-old. But then the American tennis star kept on winning, with a power game that changed the sport. She broke records and hoovered up 22 more Grand Slams, tennis's most prestigious titles. Only Margaret Court. An Australian has more with twenty-four, and even that record would have been broken, claims Ms. Williams, were it not for her health issues after the birth of her child in two thousand seventeen. She hasn't won a Grand Slam since. Ms. Williams has no regrets, though. Now she wants to focus on her family and Serena Ventures, her venture capital firm. This year's U.S. Open, which starts on Monday, will be her last tournament. The bookies have her as a fifty-to-one long shot, but Ms. Williams has overcome longer odds before. Daily quiz: Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist dot com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Monday, who was the wife of Jupiter in Roman mythology? Finally, here's the quote of the day from Ingrid Bergman, 
who was born on this day in 1915 and died on this day in 1982. A kiss is a lovely trick designed by nature to stop speech when words become superfluous. That's The World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.